Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live at our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, Streamwood, or Huntley. Or check out a service online. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, a number of years ago, there was a high-rise office building that had elevators that were way too slow. And so the occupants of the building, they would complain about how long they had to wait each time they were, you know, trying to get on the elevator. And it got to the point where many of the occupants said, we're going to look for someplace else to go. We're going to find a different place to rent. And so the owners of the building, they got together, they hired some engineers, and they said, maybe there's a way that we could speed up the elevators. They tried all sorts of different solutions. They said, well, maybe we'd get different motors or lighter carts, or we'd change the kind of algorithm that decided where the elevator stopped on what floor, and nothing seemed to work. They couldn't find a way to really speed it up, and anything they tried was going to cost a whole lot more money than they could afford. And so they resigned themselves. They said, we're just going to have slow elevators, and we'll convince people to stay some other way. But then someone had the great idea. They said, what if, what if our problem is not slow elevators? What if our problem is people just don't like to wait for things, you know? And so they, they said, what if instead of trying to make the elevators faster, we try to make the wait more enjoyable? So they came up with a really simple solution. They said, we're just going to put mirrors up in the lobby where people are waiting for the elevator. And it just gave people just enough of something to do, basically check themselves out like while they're waiting, you know, or maybe spy on their neighbors without looking directly at them, you know, just a little bit to occupy their attention. And what it did is it made it so they weren't quite as bored during the waiting. And you know what happened? The complaints went down. People didn't leave the building. Turned out the problem wasn't a situation out here. It was a situation in here. Sometimes we get so focused on trying to solve one problem that we don't realize that our real problem is actually something else. We're continuing our series called Life Without a King as we read through the book of Judges as a part of our Bible Savvy reading plan. And today we are going to be in Judges chapter 6 and 7. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. Uh, Judges tells the story of a really bleak time in the history of Israel. During this season, the people of Israel kept forgetting about God, and generation after generation, they would walk away from God, which would get them into a ton of trouble, and when they were so desperate that they finally were like, this is enough, they would cry out to God, and each time, God would patiently, mercifully send them someone to rescue them, someone that we call a judge. Now, if you hear that word judge, it might be a little bit misleading, because in our society, a judge is someone who decides cases in a court of law. Now, in biblical terminology, a judge is actually a military leader, someone who uh, uh, rallied the troops and liberated the country during a time of crisis. So when you hear the word judge, don't think black robes and a gavel. Don't think Judge Judy. Think Princess Leia gathering the rebel alliance or Harry training Dumbledore's army or William Wallace fighting off the English. These are leaders who arise in time of crisis to deal with a military threat. That's what a judge is in the Bible. And today, the judge we're going to be talking about is a man named Gideon. And it turns out that Gideon's problem is not what he thinks it is. We're going to see that even before Gideon comes onto the scene in the opening of this chapter. So let's read, uh, starting in verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves and strongholds. 
Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land. They ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gideon's about to come up in this story, but even before we get to him, we can see that there is a tension going on here, okay? There is a tension between the problem that we see versus the problem that God sees. The problem we see versus the problem God sees. And you can see that in the contrast between the first two paragraphs of this chapter. In the first paragraph, you have a description of their external circumstances. So if you had asked an Israelite during this time, what is your biggest problem? It would have sounded like this first paragraph. The Midianites have invaded. There's too many of them. They're like swarms of locusts. We can't even count them. They're stealing our crops and our animals, and it's terrible. The Midianites were their problem. And that's why the second paragraph feels so startling. Because God sends a prophet in answer to their cries. And what the prophet does is recount all the mighty deeds of God. All the things he had done in Israel's past to rescue them and set them free. And when he gets to the end of that, instead of saying, now God's going to do it again with the Midianites. He says this, verse 10. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live but you have not listened to me. God doesn't even mention Midian. He doesn't mention their external problem at all. When he points to their biggest problem, he points to an internal one. He says, you have done this. He talks about their relationship with him. Turns out Israel's biggest problem isn't Midian. Israel's biggest problem is Israel. You ever been there? You look at your circumstances and you say, this, this is my big problem. I think if you asked me, if you stopped me randomly through the day and you said, what's the biggest problem you're facing right now in this moment? I would say something like, you know, my inbox is overflowing. There aren't enough applicants for a position on my team. I gotta deal with someone who's stubborn. COVID is ruining everything. My kids are being whiny. I gotta preach a sermon and I have no voice. So one of these things would be my problem. But if you stopped God and said, in this moment, right now, what's Clayton's biggest problem? You know what he'd say? Say something like, his impatience, his apathy, his defensiveness, his self-pity, his need for approval, his grasping for control. God would not point to my circumstances, he'd point to my heart. And it makes sense that we focus on the circumstances, the problems that we can actually see, but God sees something deeper, something that we don't always look at. He sees what's going on inside. And it's not that God doesn't care about the circumstances. He cares deeply about what's going on in our lives. But he knows, he knows what the real threat to us is. He knows 
that if something is going to shipwreck our lives, it is not going to be our circumstances. It's gonna be our hearts. Let me say that again. God knows that if something is going to shipwreck our lives, it is not going to be our circumstances. It's gonna be our hearts. Life can be falling apart all around you. You can be as close to God as anybody ever could. You could have life on a platter, everything's going your way, and you can be completely dissonant from God. And that is why God would rather use our painful circumstances to win our hearts back to him than resolve those circumstances and leave our hearts far from him. He knows what the real priority is. So in this story, God is going to deal with Midian, but here's the surprising thing. It takes almost two chapters before an actual Midianite shows up in the story. For most of the story, God doesn't deal with Midian. He deals with the hearts of his people, and in particular, the heart of the leader that he's raising up, the man named Gideon. Now, as we walk through Gideon's story, here's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see four questions, four questions that God is asking Gideon to get at his heart issue. And I think these questions are also questions that God is asking us. Now, as I go through these, you may find yourself drawn to one of these questions. Here's what I'd encourage you to do whether you're taking notes or not, to write down whichever question that you say, I feel like God's asking me this one. Figure out some time later this week to pray through that question, journal about it, keep thinking about it, and say, what is God actually asking me in my heart? Here's the first question that God asks. Is the story you've been telling yourself the whole truth? Is the story you've been telling yourself the whole truth? Here's where Gideon's story begins. The angel of the Lord shows up to call Gideon, And in verse 12, it says this. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, Gideon doesn't believe this. He doesn't feel like God is with him at all. And so he says this, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon's telling a story about his situation, and here's the story he's telling. This is God's fault. I mean, God could have rescued us. We've heard stories about what he did in the past. He's obviously not doing anything about it now, so this must mean that he doesn't care. He's abandoned us. This is God's fault. You ever told that story about your own circumstances? You look at things, and you say, look, if God were real, if he loved me, if he were with me, He'd deal with this stuff. He'd do something about it, but he hasn't, which must mean he's not there. You ever say that? The the Lord responds to Gideon in verse 14. He, He says, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? It doesn't directly answer Gideon's complaint, but he says, you know what? I'm not explaining what I've been doing in the past, but I'm telling you what I'm doing now. But Gideon has another objection. He says, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon's telling another story. He's saying, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do about this. I'm from a small town. I'm a nobody with nothing to offer. And so Gideon looks at his weakness and he says, this is, this is the reason I can't do what you're asking me to do, God. I've got nothing to offer. Now here's the interesting thing about these two stories. They're both partially true, aren't they? 
Like the reason the Midianites invaded is because God sent them. It says that God put, handed them over into the hands of Midian. So God is responsible for this situation, but that's only half the story. Because the story starts a little bit earlier where God, the, the people of Israel have turned away from God. They've run away from him and God has said, go and see how that works. They've essentially said, we want to see if these gods over here will help us. And God says, let's see if they help you, okay? When the Midianites come in, see if they defend you. Yesterday, I had to give a timeout to my five-year-old. And the whole time he's sitting on the stairs, he's screaming at me. He's saying, this is because of you. <laughs> because of you. And he's kind of right, right? <laughs> like I put him in timeout. He wouldn't be there if I didn't send him. But he did not tell the first part of the story where he decided he would spit on his sister, okay? So like he's not saying the whole truth. This is what Gideon's doing. This is what Israel was doing. Saying, this is all because of you, God, rather than saying, here's my part in the problem. Same goes for Gideon's story about being weak. He is weak. He's from a small clan. He's a nobody. He doesn't have what it takes to save Israel. But that's only half the story. God fills in the other half. He says, I will be with you. And that second half changes the whole thing, doesn't it? We do similar things. We tell stories about our situations, and often they've got a kernel of truth in them, which is why we believe the stories we tell ourselves, but they're often not the whole story. We look at the mess in our life. We see addictions and debt, broken relationships, and we look at that, and we point to all our circumstances. We say, it's this person's fault. They did this to us. This happened to me. And we refuse to take ownership for the part that we've played. We only tell half the truth. Or maybe you've done this. You've replayed an argument in your head that you had with a coworker or a family member or a friend or somebody. The whole time, the, the story, I mean, you, you keep focusing on the things that make it sound like you were convincing and they were an idiot. Or you paint your motives in the very best light and you think the worst about them. It's not the whole story. Or maybe you've been tempted to sin. Before you sin, it's always a half story, right? You, 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 you think, oh, I really wanna do this. And so the only thing you think about is that God is merciful, he's forgiving, he'll kind of overlook this. And then you give in to the sin, and on the other side, you're telling a different half of the story. You're saying, God hates sin, he's, he's judging me, he's against me, and you forget all about his grace and mercy. You tell the wrong half of the story at different times. Or you look at your situations, and you do what Gideon did, and you say, this is too big, and I'm too weak. There's nothing that can be done. And you ignore the other half of the, the story where God says, yeah, it's true. You are weak, but I am with you. You gotta ask yourself, is the story I've been telling myself the whole truth? That's the first question. Here's the second one. What trash do I need to take out? What trash do I need to take out? After Gideon is called to fight the Midianites, you would think that the very next thing that, that they would, he would do is gather an army, right? You know, get an army, build a battle plan, get some weapons, get ready to go fight this battle. But this is not the first thing God has Gideon do. The first thing he, he does is in verse 25. It says this, that same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of its height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. And so Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him, 
But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than the daytime. You're gonna see this as a pattern with Gideon. He does what God asked him to, but he's always a little bit unsure. He's a little bit afraid. The, The first thing God calls Gideon to do is tear down his family altar to false gods. Uh, Baal and Asherah, they're two popular deities in the cultures around Israel at this time. Uh, Baal is a god of weather, and Asherah is a fertility goddess. So if you're an ancient farmer, these are two really important things for you, okay? It's a really big deal. You need rain for your crops, and you need your animals to reproduce, and you need children to carry on the family business and the family name. Your life and your livelihood depend on these things, on, on weather and fertility, And so when you see the culture around you going to these other gods saying, hey, this is where we get the things that we need, you think, huh, I could use a fertility god on my side. That sounds really helpful. And so Israel, rather than just ditch the Lord outright, they kind of hedge their bets. They put some chips on on Baal and some chips on the Lord, and they just see, maybe I'll get a payout from both. Maybe maybe I'll get the blessing of of, kind of, you know, dabbling in these different deities. Don't we do something like this? Like we know what God calls us to do, but we look at the people around us, we look at the culture around us, and we grab some of the things that they say are really important. We add them to our life. We say, you know what, these these might not be totally compatible with God, but I'm gonna kind of, you know, hedge my bets. I'm gonna do a little of this and a little of that. This was basically Israel's whole problem during this time. That Israel was told they needed to drive out all the idolatry. They couldn't tolerate it, and yet they did. And whether they intended to have it happen or not, the the idolatry seeped in and and seduced them. And so this is why in the book of Judges, they're stuck in this cycle that Jim described last week. They keep turning away from God. And then when they get in trouble, they cry out to God. And God sends a rescuer. But as soon as the rescue is done, they begin to forget about God again. And the cycle repeats over and over again. It's because they keep tolerating these influences. And so the reason Gideon has to tear down the altar is because he needs to take out the trash that had been sitting there for far too long. What's the trash that you need to take out? What are the influences in your life that you have tolerated for far too long that keep sucking you in or warping your priorities? Is there a show that you've been watching? It might be as simple as that, something that's entertaining, but you know this is not having a good effect on me. Maybe there's someone you're hanging out with and you realize they're actually an unhealthy influence on you. Maybe you're spending money on something that you really shouldn't. There's an app on your phone that you need to delete. Maybe you have been staying up too late and you realize that nothing good happens when you're up alone at night. Maybe you need to get the alcohol out of your house or break up with somebody. Is there a sin that you need to confess that you've been holding on to? Maybe there's an apology that you need to make. Maybe there is a family pattern. Maybe it's been going on in your family even for generations and you need to say, we just can't keep doing this. This is not okay for us. What trash do you need to take out? My guess is you might already know what the trash is. So maybe the real question is, are you willing to take it out? Here's a third heart question. Will you take God at his word? Will you take God at his word? Let's look at what may be the most famous story about Gideon that is also the most misunderstood. It's a conversation between Gideon and God. It starts in verse 36. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I'll know that you'll save Israel by my hand as you said. 
And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day and he squeezed out the fleece and he wrung out the dew, which was a bowl full of water. And the verses right after this, Gideon does a kind of a similar thing where he asks for a sign that's just a slight variation on this one and God does it again. Now, most of the time when people read this story, they think, oh, okay, so this is one of the ways you figure out what God wants you to do. This is how you figure out God's will for your life. You ask him for a sign. And so you'll hear people say, well, I'm going to put out a fleece, okay? What they're talking about is they're saying, I'm going to ask God to do something for me to have him point the direction that he wants me to go. Now, I think there are a couple of problems with this application of this passage, okay? First of all, it is really important to distinguish, especially when you're reading a story in the Bible, between the passages that are descriptive and the passages that are prescriptive. A prescriptive passage is when someone does something in a story and it's something you're also supposed to do. You're supposed to imitate it. So when Jesus serves his disciples washing their feet and then he says, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. It means we should imitate him. We should look for ways to serve the people around us. That's something we should do. It's prescriptive. But a descriptive passage is when the Bible doesn't say yes or no, you should do this. It just says this is what the person did. This is just the way the events happen. And I'll be honest, more of the stories in the Bible are descriptive than prescriptive. This is especially true in the book of Judges, where the people, even who are kind of the heroes of the story, do some really awful things. There are lots of places in the Bible where, where God describes something that happened without saying you should do likewise. This trips up a lot of new Bible readers. They'll read a story in the Bible and they'll say, man, this is horrible. Is God okay with this? And the answer is, is no, probably not. If your instinct says this is probably a bad thing, God probably also thinks it's a bad thing too. Um, it doesn't mean that just because someone did it in the Bible, you should also do it. So we've got to determine what is descriptive and prescriptive. And one of the, re the reason I think that this is a descriptive story is because when you actually look at what the Bible says about figuring out God's will, it, it, it actually discourages us from doing things like this. It regularly warns people against testing God. It warns against using practices like divination or fortune telling. It says this isn't how you figure out God's will for your life. Instead, what it says is the way you want to know what God wants you to do, the first place you go is you go to God's word and you say, are there any commands or teaching that tells me what I should be doing? Second place you go is you listen to the Holy Spirit who guides and prompts you from the inside. Third place is to go to wise people who know what they're doing in life and really know God's word and say, what do you think about this? These are the normal ways that we are guided in our life. Seeking signs from God is way down on the list. It happens occasionally in the Bible, but it's not the normal way that we're supposed to figure out God's will. And many times it's actually not what we're supposed to do. The other reason this passage is not about discerning God's will is because that's not actually what Gideon was trying to figure out. If you pay close attention, he's not actually confused about what God wants him to do. He's not looking for a sign like, do this or do that, God. This is what it says. Look again at verse 36. Gideon starts off by saying, if you will save Israel. Okay, so if you're gonna do this thing, and then he ends it by saying, as you have promised. Here's what this means. Gideon is not confused about what God has promised. He has already heard it plain as day. God wants to use him to save Israel. In fact, the angel of the Lord showed up and said it to Gideon, this is what I'm going to do. Now, let me ask you a question. If an angel showed up and said, here's what you are supposed to do, would you be like, God, I'm confused? No, Gideon's not confused, okay? He, he, he hears what God has said and he's saying, I'm not sure that's a good idea. I'm not sure I trust you. 
So sometimes when we're driving, uh, Michelle and I, if I'm, if I'm driving, uh, Michelle is the navigator because I'm really bad at uh, you know, keeping track of directions while I'm actually driving. So we'll be driving along and she'll say, hey, you should get in the right lane now or you should turn left here or whatever. She'll kind of guide me as I go. And sometimes when she's giving me directions, I will say, you want me to turn here? And when I ask that question, it can mean one of two things. It could mean, it's kind of noisy in the car, I didn't quite hear you. Could you repeat what you said because I want to follow that direction? Or it could mean, you want me to turn here? In which case I'm saying, wait, wait, wait. I heard what you said, but I don't think you're leading us in the right direction. I think you got the directions wrong. This is not going to get us where we need to go. This is what Gideon is doing. He's heard God, but he's saying, I, th- I think you got it wrong. Do you ever do this with God? I wonder if there's something that God has told you or you know you need to do, but for whatever reason, you're resistant. You don't trust God with that. Maybe there's something you read in the Bible, you're like, this command is for me, I need to do this. Or there's a prompting of the Holy Spirit that you just can't seem to shake. Or maybe someone has called you out about something in your life and you know they're right, but you just don't want to do it. You're like Gideon and you, you know what you're supposed to do, but you, you don't trust God, you don't take him at his word. You see, sometimes doing what God asks us to do is scary. You gotta tell the truth when it's gonna hurt. You gotta forgive someone who's done something really painful in your life. You gotta share the gospel and that feels dangerous. You need to confess sin that no one's ever heard about. You gotta get baptized. Maybe you heard we're having a baptism in a couple of weeks and you're like, I know I gotta do that, but I still haven't signed up to do it. We, we know God's commands, but it feels risky to try to do them. How do we grow in trusting God enough to say, I'm gonna take you at your word and do what you asked me to do? Most of the time when the Bible talks about this, it has one big command. It says, remember, remember. Remember the things that God has done. Bring to mind the things that God has done in the past. It might be as simple as starting off just making a list. A list that where you start with the little things, okay? The, the things like, there, I'm breathing right now. I have food on my table. Every day I have a shelter, a roof over my head. I have health right now. You write down those just ordinary things that day by day God has been faithful in. Then you think of some of the bigger things. You think about a time when you stepped out in faith, you did something you were scared to do, and God met you there. When you were lonely and God comforted you, when you were in pain and he was, he was your source of solace, when you were guilty and he forgave you and showed you mercy, you write down those things and say, God, I know you have been there in the past. But more than anything, you look at the things that Jesus has done. He said, this is what Jesus has done for me. He came to earth. He stepped out of heaven and became a human being. He died on the cross to pay for my sin. He defeated death so that I have hope in the future. And then you look at that list and you say, if he has done all of these things for me in the past, do you think that he's going to abandon you now or in the future? Absolutely not. Anybody who would go through all that trouble to rescue you and save you is not going to now ask you to do something that will break and destroy you. If he's done these things, you can take him at his word. Here's the last question. If God is on your side, is that enough? If God's on your side, is that enough? Once Gideon is convinced and he's finally embraced his call to fight the Midianites, he gathers an army from the surrounding tribes. And he actually does pretty well at doing this. He's got about 32,000 guys that are, are there. And this is pretty key, because if you remember from the beginning, the description of the Midianites is that they're like swarms of locusts on the hill. There's too many of them to count. So this is a big army. They're going to need a lot of men to fight them off. 
But then in chapter 7, in verse 2, it says this. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. And then what God does is he proceeds to thin out Gideon's army. First, he says this. He's like, all right, you have to send home anybody who's afraid, which when you think about it, you're like, if you have an army of people going to fight this massive force, you're like, any of you afraid? They're like, yeah, and two-thirds of the army, they leave, okay? Like, go. You're afraid you got something better to do than fight these people and die? Go, go. And the other, the other third, it's like they were actually scared. They just didn't raise their hand, you know? He's got 10,000 men left, okay? And God says, still too much, still too much. And then God comes up with kind of an arbitrary way. It's just kind of random, a way to say, these people can stay and these people can go. And by the time that it's done, there are 300 men left. I want you to think about that. From 32,000 to 300 men left. You are Gideon, and you are already unsure about this assignment, but you managed to raise a decent army, and then God says, I'm gonna leave you with uh, less than 1% of what you managed to recruit. Think about that. If you were given a project, and you had a budget, and you're like, okay, I got some money to do this, and then someone came in and said, I'm gonna slash it by 99%. How would you feel about that assignment? Or let's say you had something that you had two weeks to get done, and then someone told you, actually, it needs to be done in an hour. Or you were told, you gotta go preach a sermon and like two days before you lose your voice, okay? Like these sorts of things, you say, how am I gonna do this, right? Why would God take away the resources that Gideon actually managed to to put together? Because God wants Gideon and Israel to know that he and he alone is responsible for saving them. God wants to make it obvious that the victory comes through him and not through human strength. And of course, this is always true, no matter how much resources you have at your disposal. Uh, God does not need our help. On our own, we cannot save ourselves. And even the strength that we do have, it actually comes from God. But sometimes we miss this and we think, oh, I did this. I earned this. I made this happen. We feel really proud of ourselves. And this is is true both when it comes to our ultimate salvation and our day-to-day practical needs. Think about it. Forgiveness of sin rescue from death, eternal life. Who makes that happen? How does that happen? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. He did it all. It's his life, his death, his resurrection, his rule. We play no part in that accomplishment. We add nothing to it. There's a song that we sing around here. It says, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Even on a day-to-day level, the very breath in our lungs is from him. We, we can't even make our heart beat one more time. We're not in control of that. The atoms in our body would fly apart if he didn't hold them together. If he ceased to think about us, we would cease to exist. So we are fooling ourselves. When we look at the good gifts in our lives, our, our successes and our possessions and our relationships and our skills, and we say, my own strength has done that. And this is what God wants Gideon to see really clearly. Everything depends on God. Now that sounds like a a, a firm lesson, but it's actually a really liberating one. It's one that sets you free. Because if God is on your side, it means that no matter how little resources you have, God is still enough. Enough to face any situation. In 2 Corinthians, God tells Paul, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, 
in weakness, even if we have nothing else, God is still enough. What would it look like if we actually believed that? The, this Thursday, the church staff was having a prayer meeting, and Pastor Eric, he asked uh, everybody a question. He said, okay, if there was one thing that God could do, and just even in the next couple of weeks, one thing that would make the biggest difference for our church, what would it be? People were given answers. And one person gave this answer. He said, I think the biggest thing would be if the congregation was vulnerable. I think he included also the staff in this, but what he meant is this. If we were just honest with ourselves and honest with other people about what our real needs are, if we would just be vulnerable enough to admit that we desperately need God, that things are out of our control, that there are things that we cannot do on our own, if that happened, it would change everything. He said, imagine what would happen if this dawned on us he said, after every service on the weekend, we, there, there'd be so many people who are seeking prayer, we'd have to get more people on the prayer team. On weekends like this, when we have our elders available for prayer, there'd be a line out the door. They wouldn't go home until Monday, okay? Elders, you can thank me later if God answers this prayer. <laughs> but this is what it would be. We would say that we cannot do anything without God. Apart from him, we can do nothing. That's what it says. And so we, we would say, you know what? Strategy is helpful, resources are helpful, working hard is helpful, but there is nothing that will make a difference like the presence of God in our lives. And so we would seek him. Our first instinct would be, not, not our last instinct, but our first instinct would be to pray and to cry out to him and say, I need you for everything. I need you for everything. If God is on our side, it is more than enough. The, the rest of the Gideon story proves this. God sends Gideon to fight the Midianites with just those 300 men. And he actually goes a step further. He, he uses the most ridiculous battle plan you can think of, okay? So Gideon tells the men, he says, all right, we're going into battle, and here's what I want you to bring. I want you to carry a, a torch with a pot over it in one hand and a trumpet in the other. And we're gonna go sneak up into the hills around the enemy camp, and on my signal, you're gonna break the jars, and you're gonna yell, and you're gonna blow the trumpets, and so this is what they do. They go up in there and they, they, they do this thing. And in the middle of the night, they, they cry out, they blow the trumpets and the Midianites wake up and they're in a panic. Now it's in the dead of night. So they come rushing out of their tents and they don't realize that the other soldiers in the camp are just the rest of the Midianite soldiers. So they start fighting each other and they kill each other. And the ones that don't get killed, they run for their lives and flee for the hills. And here's my favorite part. When the, the Israelite soldiers are crying out, their battle cry is this. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. But there's a specific detail that says, all of the men had in their right hand a trumpet and in their left hand a torch. Not one of them was holding a sword. A sword for the Lord. No, it's the sword of the Lord. None of them had a weapon. 300 men, nobody armed. If God is on your side, it is enough. You see, God had the external problem covered. At no point in this story was God worried about the Midianites. What God was concerned about was the internal problem of his people's heart. He cared more about teaching them a lesson about trusting and depending on him than defeating their enemy. And here's the lesson. If you want to sum it up, here's the lesson that God taught Gideon in Israel about all of this. You don't have to be the hero of your own story. You don't have to be the hero of your own story. See, this is our real problem as God sees it. Ultimately speaking, this is what trips us up. We are always trying to be the hero of our own story, 
We're always trying to run our own life, always trying to solve our own problems, always depending on our own strength, always trying to save ourselves. And that leads us into all sorts of trouble. But it's also an incredible burden to bear, isn't it? I mean, you wonder why Gideon was so scared. It's because he thought he had to be the hero. He thought it was on his shoulders. But what he really needed to do, all he really needed to do, was trust God to be the hero. My friends, I want you to hear this good news again. You don't have to be the hero of your own story. That's not just the message of this passage about Gideon. It's also the message of the season of Advent, the season as we prepare for Christmas. As we read through the book of Judges, you'll see this refrain repeated. There was no king in Israel. There was no king, there was no king, there was no king. But on Christmas, the king finally arrives. The hero steps onto the scene. The hero who will fight the battle for us, the one who will win the victory, the one who will vanquish the enemy. And it turns out, the hero is a baby (laughs) lying in a manger. It looks like weakness. This hero with no army and nobody from a nowhere town surrounded by too many threats to count. And yet we know from the story of Gideon that God has always been a fan of underdog stories. And so this is the story he actually tells in the life of his own son. And this is true right up to the very end of Jesus' life. In just a moment, we're gonna celebrate communion. We're gonna remember how Jesus won the greatest battle in history, and he did so with no one at his side, with no sword in hand, and nothing but the power of God made perfect in his weakness as he hung there on the cross. But as we know, that was more than enough. Let's pray. God, we want to put our trust in you. God, we realize that as we look around at our circumstances, that they may seem overwhelming, they may seem too big for us, but they're not too big for you. And God, we know that what you really want to do is free our hearts. So God, we ask that you would make us people who trust you. People who will take you at your word. Make us people who know that you're the hero and we are not. Make us people who believe that if we have you and nothing else, it is enough. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.